Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, December 12th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. Donald Tusk is elected Prime Minister of Poland. India's Supreme Court upholds the decision to remove Kashmir's special status. European countries seek additional sanctions against Hamas. Argentina's new president warms of a looming economic shock treatment. Trump won't testify in his fraud trial. Rudy Giuliani appears in court for defamation. The UK is accused of betraying elite Afghan troops. Voter turnout slumps to a record low in Hong Kong. The UN warns of a massive funding shortfall. Tucker Carlson launches a paid streaming service. And a new study links the AstraZeneca vaccine to Guillain-Barre syndrome. Donald Tusk is elected Prime Minister of Poland. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Reuters, Politico, Poland's Chancellery of the Same, and Notes from Poland. Donald Tusk is set to become Poland's new Prime Minister after successfully being nominated by the Polish Parliament on Monday evening. He will address the chamber on Tuesday before being sworn in alongside Poland's new coalition government by President Duda on Wednesday. This follows a failed vote of confidence by current Prime Minister Matusz Morawiecki earlier in the day which came after his Law and Justice, or PIS, party failed to win a majority in the country's October elections. While PIS, which ruled for eight years, saw itself remain the largest party in Poland following the country's October election, earning 35.4% of the vote from a record 74.4% turnout, support saw an 8.2% drop from 2019, and the party's total of 194 was not enough to form a majority within the 460-seat lower chamber of parliament. The vote of confidence within Poland's lower chamber of parliament saw 190 in favor of Morawiecki and 266 voting against the current prime minister. Three members chose not to vote. Polish President Andrzej Duda had awarded Morawiecki the first opportunity to form a new government due to the party's largest share of the popular vote, with PIS proposed cabinet sworn in two weeks ago. Tusk is the leader of the civic coalition, which has agreed, in theory, to govern with the third way and the left. Tusk previously served as Polish prime minister between 2007 and 2014, as well as being president of the European Council. The civic coalition, or KO, won 30.7% of the vote in October, gaining 157 seats. The third way held 65 seats after winning 14.4% of the vote, and the left, an alliance between Poland 2050 and Polish People's Party, received 26 seats in the lower chamber after taking 8.6% of the vote. All right. On this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Eric just laid out the facts for us, and now our first narrative is Narrative A from Financial Times. The likely return of Tusk to the wheel of Polish politics is a sign of relief to Europe and the EU following eight years of hard-right governance. Having become a thorn in the side of the European project, Poland has a chance to recover and regain its role as a key state within the continent. Bordering Ukraine, the return of normality to Warsaw is an enormous boost to the region, ensuring greater strength against ill-intended actors. Narrative B comes from European Conservative. Despite vowing to bring Poland back from the brink of relations with the EU, the prime minister-to-be will have a hard time juggling the plethora of ideologies found within his wide-reaching coalition. Despite having been given the first opportunity to form a government, the numbers meant that Morawiecki was always destined to fail. Time will only tell if Tusk can maintain stability in Poland, and it remains to be seen whether this will lead to a realignment of recent policies. 
India's Supreme Court upholds the stripping of Kashmir's special status. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Sky News, The Wall Street Journal, and The Guardian. India's Supreme Court has ruled that a 2019 law revoking Article 370, which stripped the state of Jammu and Kashmir of its semi-autonomous status, is constitutional, meaning New Delhi can bring the region under the direct control of the federal government. Before Prime Minister Narendra Modi's Bharatiya Janata Party, or BJP, revoked the law, Jammu and Kashmir were given special rights not afforded to other Indian states. The five-member court, led by Chief Justice D.Y. Chandrachud, ruled unanimously that the law passed in 1947, following independence from the UK, was only meant to be temporary during wartime. India went to war with Pakistan shortly after its independence, and Pakistan has claimed the region as its own ever since. Under the special status, Kashmiris were able to own property and obtain government jobs and scholarships. Kashmir also had its own constitution that superseded most federal laws, and people from outside the state were not allowed to be property holders. After the BJP's revocation, the federal government divided the populace of 12 million residents into two union states. The Chief Justice wrote that the state of Jammu and Kashmir does not have internal sovereignty different from other states with Justice S.K. Call adding a recommendation that an impartial Truth and Reconciliation Commission be set up in Kashmir to investigate human rights violations by both state and non-state actors, a decades-long period. Since the ruling, security has been bolstered in the region. While the ruling is a win for the Hindu nationalist BJP, Kashmiri political leaders, who have reportedly been under house arrest since 2019, have decried the decision. Former Chief Minister Mabuba Mufti called it unjust, illegal, and unconstitutional, as well as a death sentence for both the state and the idea of India. Meanwhile, Jammu and Kashmir's current lieutenant governor, Manaj Sinha, called the claims of house arrest of any political officials baseless rumors. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. We begin the round of spins with Narrative A coming from Al Jazeera. This is yet another attack on Muslim rights and the region's autonomy by Prime Minister Modi's government. Jammu and Kashmir had already been stripped of the right to decide laws on defense, finance, foreign affairs, and communications for seven decades. And now progress has been rolled back even more. This defeat must be harnessed into political action. And narrative B from the Indian Express. As the court stated, the special status of Jammu and Kashmir was always temporary. And the region's temporary status continued for far too long. A country operating under two flags and two constitutions is destined to become weak and vulnerable, which is why the region has been undermined by Pakistani-led meddling and terrorism for years. Under the protection of New Delhi, both Hindus and Muslims alike will see a boon to the local economy. The Metaculous Prediction community gives us a nerd narrative. They're saying that there's a 45% chance that there will be a non-BJP Prime Minister of India before 2030. European countries seek additional Hamas sanctions. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, The Guardian, BBC News, New York Times, and CNN. France, Germany, and Italy called on Monday for the EU to set up a special sanctions scheme to target Hamas, weighing the possibility of targeting Hamas's finances and travel bans for Israeli settlers responsible for violence in the West Bank. Hamas is already listed by the EU as a terrorist group, and the foreign ministers did not provide details regarding what would change. After a weekend of intense street battles, Israel has continued to advance into the urban centers throughout the Gaza Strip, in particular in the city of Khan Yunus in the south. 
Despite Israel's gains on the ground, it has failed to completely prevent rocket fire from Gaza into Israel, and rocket fire has also continued from Lebanon. So far, Israel has officially announced the loss of 104 of its soldiers, with another 582 soldiers being injured since the start of the ground war. Over the weekend, Israel released footage that it claims shows Hamas fighters surrendering en masse and handing over their weapons. Dozens of men can be seen standing in their underwear, many of them with their arms aloft and holding identity cards in Biat Lahia in the north of the Strip. Whether the men in the footage were actually Hamas fighters or how many of the total men videoed were Hamas fighters is currently unverified, and dynamics within the footage are being analyzed by outlets such as the BBC. Despite international pressure for Israel to either lighten its military campaign in Gaza or even end it, Israeli officials have continued to indicate that they seek to continue the offensive until Hamas's leadership is destroyed. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said on Sunday, quote, You can't support the elimination of Hamas on the one hand and pressure us to end the war, which would prevent Hamas's elimination. On Friday, the U.S. vetoed a U.N. Security Council resolution that would have called for an immediate ceasefire. The humanitarian situation in Gaza continues to worsen, as most of the Strip's residents have been crammed into a small amount of space near the Egyptian border. Hunger is becoming rampant as food prices skyrocket, and civilians are also dying of cold. Jordan accused Israel of attempting to force Palestinians out of Gaza and into Egypt, an accusation that an Israeli spokesman called, quote, outrageous and false. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left over 18,000 people in the Gaza Strip dead, many of whom it claims are children. The official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people, and there are still over 100 hostages being held in the Gaza Strip. All right, thanks for those disturbing facts on this continued conflict, Eric. The pro-Israel narrative from Jerusalem Post. Though this has been a tragic war, Israel cannot allow Hamas to survive. Hamas seized upon last week's temporary pause to mark Israeli positions and prepare itself for continued attacks on Israeli forces in Gaza. Indeed, the pace at which Israeli forces maneuvered in Gaza through Hamas's military leadership off kilter, and Israel will have to work intelligently in its campaign in the south of the Strip to fully eliminate the terrorist group so it can never launch an attack like October 7th again. Pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Unfortunately, the temporary ceasefire only gave civilians a few days of relative rest, and now Israel has returned to killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate. The U.S., Israel's biggest ally, must exert more pressure to end the war. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 54% chance that Israel will have de facto power in the Gaza Strip on January 1st, 2025. Argentina's Javier Millet warns of economic shock in his inaugural address. Here are the facts as agreed upon by NPR Online News, MSN, NBC, Al Jazeera, The Associated Press, and BBC News. After being sworn in as Argentina's president on Sunday, Javier Millet delivered his inaugural address, warning the country about the economic shock that his administration will deliver. The libertarian economist said that there is no money and there is no alternative to austerity. Thousands of Millet's supporters gathered in the capital city of Buenos Aires to celebrate the inauguration. Addressing the nation, Millet reiterated his policy to address Argentina's dire economic concerns and continue to speak bluntly about the issues he spoke about often during his campaign. 
Once a wealthy country, Argentina is dealing with 140% annual inflation and 40% poverty rate, which Millet attributes to years of government spending and socialist policies. Millet has promised to significantly reduce government spending, eliminate the central bank, and replace the Argentine peso with the U.S. dollar. He said that the country's $45 billion debt to the International Monetary Fund and $43 billion trade deficit prevent a gradual approach to fixing the economy and that his policies will cause some economic pain in the short term. Argentina's stock market and currency fell on Monday following Millet's economic warning. The country's peso officially trades at 366 to 1 United States dollar. But the country's parallel black market reflects a more accurate figure of 945 pesos to 1 US dollar. Millet's government will lay out further economic plans on Tuesday. Millet's election toppled a long-standing run of dominance by the Peronist movement. Despite Millet's victory, he is still expected to face opposition from Peronist lawmakers who refuse to accept reduced wages. Thank you, Scott. The right narrative comes from PJ Media. Argentina made the correct choice in picking Javier Millet as the leader to lift the country out of its economic disaster. However, the road to economic prosperity is long and arduous. There is no quick fix to Argentina's triple-digit inflation and rising poverty. And harsh measures are needed to undo decades of damage done by socialist leaders. While sound, free-market economic measures are needed to save Argentina, the situation is so dire that it will take time for these policies to yield positive results. Socialism plagued Argentina, and the country must accept the medicine it needs to get better, even if it results in short-term pain. And the left narrative from foreign policy, Javier Millet is another Trump-style authoritarian who is working to destroy his country's democracy. Millet capitalized on Argentina's severe economic troubles to push a platform of hate and extremism. The self-described libertarian is actually a fascist who wants to use his power to undo the progress Argentina has made on human rights and democratic issues. Millet's extreme economic policies may not even be implemented and could exacerbate economic hardship if they are. Millet has already promised austerity measures. His autocratic impulses are deeply concerning. The Metaculous Prediction community says that there's a 24% chance that Argentina will fully dollarize its economy before 2028. That is their nerd narrative. I wonder, Eric, how strict that linking to the dollar would be. Is it actually we're using U.S. dollars or we're saying our currency is equivalent to the U.S. dollar? Man, I don't know. You know what? Let me make a couple of phone calls. Thanks. And, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I'll let wait. me see what I can come up with. Uh, you know what? I'll yeah. have my people contact your people. How about that? All right. Okay, good. Sure. Thank you. Yeah, no problem, buddy. And he's, I'm here for you, Scott. Former U.S. President Donald Trump on Sunday announced via social media he will not be testifying this week on the part of his defense in the New York Attorney General's civil fraud case against him, his family, and his business. Trump wrote he successfully and conclusively testified in this case, which he called directed by President Joe Biden. He also claimed that New York Attorney General Letitia James, whom he called, quote, racist, and Manhattan Supreme Court Justice Arthur Engeron should be investigated. Previously, Trump, on November 6th, testified for prosecutors for more than three hours, denying any malfeasance in relation to accusations of inflating and deflating the value of his real estate to obtain favorable loans and insurance terms. Prior to the start of the trial, Engeron, who is presiding over this case, found Trump liable for one fraud claim against him, revoking the Trump Organization's business licenses in New York State. That decision is on hold on appeal. James is seeking $250 million in damages. Trump organization could also be forced to hand control over a court-appointed receiver and to sell several real estate holdings. 
All right, thanks, Eric. Unsurprisingly, we have some politically divergent narratives on this story. Let's start with the anti-Trump narrative from MSNBC. Trump couldn't help but incriminate himself in testimony during this and other cases against him. The gag order, which has been imposed by Engeron, probably also affected this decision because Trump wouldn't have risked fines or even jail time if he found himself again unable to stop attacking those covered by the protective order. Newsmax gives us a pro-Trump narrative. Trump knows to quit when he's ahead, and he's smart to stop participating in this witch hunt by James, who ran for her office on a politicized anti-Trump platform. Trump's prior testimony shot down these accusations despite attempts by the court to restrict his free speech with a gag order. Trump's defense witnesses have been impeccable as well. This case will be easily won by the former president. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 46% chance that Donald Trump will be elected president of the United States in 2024. That visit we had a few weeks ago when you said I, well, one, one of that, your childhood dreams was to own Trump Tower one day and change it to Wallace Tower. It's going to be going on the market soon, Scott. Say what you will about Donald Trump, like him or hate him. That Fifth Avenue location right on the corner of Central Park, that's a good spot. If someone wants to sell me Trump Tower for a good deal, I mean, it really is a good location. Rudy Giuliani heads to court in his defamation case. Here are the facts as agreed upon by 1310 KFKA, CNN, NBC, Associated Press, The Hill, and CBS. Former New York City Mayor Rudy Giuliani arrived at a Washington, D.C. court Monday morning as he faces a trial to determine the damages he must pay related to a defamation lawsuit brought by two Georgia election workers. Giuliani was found liable in August for making defamatory statements about the two workers. The plaintiffs, Ruby Freeman and her daughter, Wandry Moss, are seeking between $15.5 million and $43 million in damages for the emotional and reputational harm that came from Giuliani's remarks following the 2020 election. Giuliani was a lawyer for former President Donald Trump when he challenged the election results. Giuliani arrives roughly 20 minutes late to the courtroom which his attorney blamed on the security line to enter the courthouse. Eight jurors were selected Monday after potential candidates were asked their opinions on the legitimacy of the 2020 election and other topics related to the case. Opening arguments began Monday afternoon, and Giuliani did not speak to reporters when he entered the courthouse. He is expected to take the witness stand, which could impact a separate criminal case in Georgia that accuses Trump, Giuliani, and others of trying to overturn the state's election results. District Judge Beryl Howell, an Obama appointee who has presided over several Trump-related cases, sided with the plaintiffs in August, and this week's trial is only to determine the damages and any potential penalties. After the 2020 election, Giuliani accused the women of committing election fraud and passing around computer memory equipment, which had been proven false. Giuliani admitted in July to making the false statements and has already been ordered to pay the plaintiffs $89,000 attorney's fees since he did not fulfill his discovery obligations. Thanks, Eric. We have left and right narratives on this story. Let's start with the left narrative spin from The Guardian. Rudy Giuliani and Donald Trump's other conspirators are complicit in the former president's efforts to illegally overturn the 2020 election results and must be held accountable. Giuliani knowingly spread conspiracy theories while representing Trump and used his prominent platform to provoke threats against two Georgia election workers. Ruby Freeman and Shea Moss were doing their patriotic duty by volunteering to serve American democracy. Yet Rudy Giuliani defamed them, putting them in danger just to spread lies on behalf of Donald Trump. He owes the plaintiffs everything they seek. The Gateway Pundit gives us a right narrative. 
The mainstream media refuses to report the truth when it comes to the 2020 election, and the left-leaning regime is attacking its political opponents from all angles. Related to the, quote, false statements Rudy Giuliani made about two Georgia election workers, suppressed documents and videos show quite a different point of view and at least merit investigation with due diligence. The court system will try to send a message by ordering Giuliani to pay millions, but there are deeper systemic issues here. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 56% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before the year 2030. Elite Afghan troops face the threat of a return to the Taliban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, Daily Mail, the UK's House of Commons Library, and PBS NewsHour. Some 200 elite Afghan soldiers trained and funded by the UK who for years fought alongside the UK and other coalition forces against the Taliban, face eminent deportation from Pakistan to Afghanistan, where they'll likely face reprisals and ill-treatment, according to a BBC investigation. Furthermore, a group of 32 former governors, prosecutors, and officials who worked with the UK and US in Afghanistan's Helmand province between 2006 and 2014, and fled to neighboring Pakistan after the Taliban returned to power in 2021, reportedly faced the same fate. Alongside the soldiers and ex-officials, an estimated 1.7 million Afghans are believed to have crossed the border into Pakistan without the proper papers. According to the UN, the Pakistani government's subsequent crackdown on illegal immigration has already forced about 340,000 to return, while 1.3 million are at risk of imminent deportation. According to the BBC, most soldiers and former officials had applied to the UK government's Afghan Relocations and Assistance Program, intended for people who worked alongside the UK or closely supported it. However, many have either been rejected or have yet to hear back after more than a year of waiting. Meanwhile, the UK government claims that it has relocated over 11,000 Afghans to Britain under the program as of June 30th and is considering more than 1,800 complex applications seeking asylum from Pakistan. Thank you, Scott. The first spin is an establishment-critical narrative. It's coming from Independent. Having promised these brave Afghans safe passage to the UK for their tireless work alongside the country, the UK has now failed to live up to its promise, leaving these people in harm's way. Unless this situation is rectified, this is a national disgrace for Britain. And the UK government's official website brings us the pro-establishment narrative. The UK is doing all it can in the move to relocate hundreds of Afghans who worked for the British military and government to the UK has been accelerated. The Afghan Relocations and Assistance Program, supported by embassies and high commissions, remains open to eligible applicants. The nerds from the Metaculous Prediction community say there's a 50% chance that the US will reopen its embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan by February 2028. The Patriots-only election in Hong Kong sees a record low turnout. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, South China Morning Post, Guardian, and CNN. Hong Kong saw a record low 27.5% voter turnout on Sunday for its first, quote, Patriots-only district council elections, which saw pro-democracy, anti-China candidates removed from the ballot. This followed a record high turnout in 2019 where pro-democracy candidates won in a landslide, prompting Beijing to pass a 2020 security law banning any candidates deemed disloyal. Sunday's election saw the pro-establishment Democratic Alliance for the Betterment and Progress of Hong Kong, or DAB, winning 109 of the 264 seats up for grabs. 
with the Federation of Trade Unions taking 27 and New People's Party and the Business and Professionals Alliance winning 15 and 12 seats, respectively. Despite the low turnout, city leader John Lee lauded what he deemed a, quote, high-quality election, with the central government celebrating it as an example of a real functioning democracy. Beijing's top office overseeing both Hong Kong and Macau said the winners should focus on the livelihood and well-being of residents and effectively implement the, quote, one country, two systems governing principle. To run this election, in which directly elected seats were cut by 80 percent, candidates first had to undergo national security background checks and secure nominations from two pro-government committees. This resulted in at least three pro-democracy and non-establishment groups, including moderates and some pro-Beijing politicians, being excluded from the ballot. The fewer than 1.2 million Hong Kongers who headed to the polls, far less than the 71% of eligible voters who participated in 2019, came despite a concerted effort by the island's government to boost voter turnout. This included posters and billboards stating, quote, for a better community placed throughout the city, as well as a government-sponsored concert, carnival, and free museum visits the day before the election. On Election Day, more than 10,000 police were deployed around the polling stations, resulting in six arrests for alleged violations such as posting online for people to cast invalid ballots or inciting others to disrupt the polls. Three members of the League of Social Democrats, one of the last remaining pro-democracy groups, were among those arrested just before a planned protest. Thanks, Eric. Nikkei Asia brings us the anti-China narrative. Voter turnout was low for two similar reasons. No one believed their vote would actually count, and if they did step outside to the polls, they risked getting arrested for being a dissident. Ever since young activists spurred record turnout in 2019, Beijing has ensured that, no matter how obviously fraudulent it looked to the rest of the world, Hong Kong would never again conduct a free and fair election. This has not only kept voters on the island from heading to the polls, but some opposition leaders from wanting to return from abroad. Global Times gives us the pro-China narrative. Beijing tightened candidacy criteria to prevent politicians in cahoots with Western nations from sneaking into office and undermine China and its territories. Beijing also isn't lying about the historically low voter turnout, but rather knows that it will take time for the population to understand the importance of excluding traitorous candidates from gaining power. Western-funded outlets like the BBC and VOA are only focusing on Hong Kong's low turnout because they know their own country's elections are just as, quote, corrupt as they accuse Beijing of being. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 50% chance that Hong Kong will stop being a special administrative region of China by March 2046. The UN warns of a funding shortfall amid soaring crises. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, the new voice of Ukraine, and France 24. The United Nations has appealed for $46 billion in funding for 2024 to continue its humanitarian missions worldwide, including in the Palestinian territories, Sudan, and Ukraine. The UN Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs, or OCHA, said in its Global Humanitarian Overview for 2024 that over 300 million people will need humanitarian support of some kind next year due to economic stress, climate emergencies, and conflict. UN Aid Chief Martin Griffith said that the body will target its needs to support 181 million of those 300. Griffiths also referenced other international NGOs which have likewise made appeals. In a statement, Griffith said that the U.N. experienced its worst funding shortfall in years in 2023, having received just over one-third of the $57 billion required. The U.N. will scale back its humanitarian operations in 2024. 
focusing on those with the gravest needs. The $46 billion funding appeal will cover aid for 72 countries. The largest single-country appeals include Syria, Ukraine, Afghanistan, Ethiopia, and Yemen, and the Middle East and North Africa is expected to be the region with the most significant need. With the year coming to a close, current projections predict that 2023 will likely be the first year since 2010 where humanitarian donations declined compared with the 12 months before. Scott, thanks for laying out the facts. First spin is a pro-establishment narrative coming from Al Jazeera. The global humanitarian outlook for next year is bleak. Conflict, natural disasters, and economic pressures will continue to threaten the lives of vulnerable people worldwide. The global community must address this urgent flash appeal to further support the UN system. The lives of millions of people are on the line. And the establishment critical narrative comes from the Heritage Foundation. The UN system is not devoid of controversy. Inadequate oversight has left millions of dollars of funds open to misuse, and some development projects have been subject to fraud and corruption. As an organization, the UN receives an enormous amount of funding every year. Perhaps it's time to evaluate the cost-effectiveness of the UN and its bureaucracy. The Metaculous Prediction Community nerd narrative saying there's a 50% chance that the total expenditures of the United Nations system in 2050 will be at least $125 billion. Tucker Carlson launches a paid streaming service. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Washington Examiner, CBS, Wall Street Journal, and The Guardian. Former Fox News host Tucker Carlson has launched a streaming service called the Tucker Carlson Network, or TCN, offering subscriptions of $9 per month or $72 per year. In addition to films and short-form content, the service will offer three shows with new episodes each week. The Tucker Carlson Encounter, which will be accessible without a subscription, Tucker Carlson Uncensored, and Ask Tucker, where subscribers can ask questions. In a video posted to X on Saturday, the platform formerly called Twitter and where Carlson has been streaming interviews since he left Fox in April, Carlson said he spent the majority of the last year working on interviews and other content for the website TuckerCarlson.com. He also joked that, quote, time flies when you're unemployed. Carlson, whose audience, while at Fox, was twice that of his competitors at CNN and MSNBC, is hoping some of his 11 million followers on X will pay the subscription. He also said he would continue to post free content on X, which has recently included Alex Jones and former President Donald Trump. Carlson's former roommate at Trinity College in Connecticut, Neil Patel, will serve as TCN's chief executive officer, with his former executive producer at Fox News, Justin Wells, serving as president overseeing all programming. Carlson and Patel, who together created the conservative news site The Daily Caller in 2010, have lined up lawyers, strategists, and financiers for TCN, including investment firm 1789 Capital. 1789 Capital, owned by banker Omid Malik, invested $15 million in the venture, with the website run by the company Last Country Incorporated, which was founded by Carlson and Patel. Carlson claimed X was unable to meet the full functional requirements for his streaming service, but he said he will still make free content available on the social media platform. However, TCN said it does have an advertising deal with X. Furthermore, Red Seat Ventures, the company that helped other former Fox hosts Megyn Kelly and Bill O'Reilly launch their own media companies, is selling much of TCN's advertising for the podcast. All right, Eric, we have a left narrative on this story from the Washington Post. Tucker Carlson isn't the truth-to-power media rebel he claims to be. 
In reality, he's the man who made Fox News lose a defamation case over Dominion voting systems. Now he's launching a media company to prop up conspiracy theorists like Alex Jones. Carlson has and continues to profit off tragedy and lies. It remains to be seen how successful his company will be with such volatile content. The right narrative comes from Daily Caller. The establishment media, whether on the left or the right, doesn't understand that Tucker understands his audience better than they do. He understands the growing demand for uncensored political content from younger people, as well as the need to cover both the traditional short-form news show audience alongside the younger long-form audience. In doing so, Tucker is shining a light on voices no one else will. This streaming venture shows all the signs of being a massive success. Our final story, studies link the AstraZeneca COVID vaccine to Guillain-Barre syndrome. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, the BMJ, Medical Express, Reuters, UCL News, and The Telegraph. Three separate studies have found a link between the Oxford-AstraZeneca COVID vaccine and an increase in Guillain-Barre syndrome, or GBS, among people who were administered the shots. GBS is a rare but deadly autoimmune disorder in which a person's peripheral nervous system is attacked, causing prolonged paralysis in some cases. According to one analysis of UK national health system data by a team of scientists, of a total of 966 GBS cases studied, 196, or about 20%, developed the condition within the first six weeks of receiving a first COVID jab. 176 of these 196 cases had received the AstraZeneca vaccine versus other brands. In September 2021, the European Medicines Agency also added GBS as a possible side effect of AstraZeneca's Vaxervia after 833 cases were reported out of 592 million doses administered worldwide. Vaxervia has also been alleged to have caused other conditions including severe brain injury and vaccine-induced immune thrombosis and thrombocytopenia. However, AstraZeneca claims its vaccine meets stringent regulatory standards and has an acceptable safety profile, adding that Vexevria's benefits outweigh the risks of extremely rare potential side effects. Scott, thank you for those facts. The Telegraph gives us narrative A. Notwithstanding the millions of lives that AstraZeneca's Vexevria has saved, the victims of its serious side effects need to be viewed separately as a category and their plight treated with as much sensitivity as the pandemic itself. It reminds us of the imperfect risks of drug development and testing, especially during the heightened tensions during a pandemic, and that there can be unintended consequences. Narrative B comes from The Independent. The actual incidence of GBS resulting from Vaxevria seemed disproportionately low to the actual risk involved. It's not difficult to imagine the scale of the tragedy the world would have faced, especially the nations with weaker healthcare infrastructure if Vaxervia had not been one of the few silver bullets to have emerged at a critical juncture. That big picture must not be lost sight of as the globe was rushing to market life-saving vaccines during the COVID pandemic. The nerd narrative says there's a 50% chance that at least 423,000 COVID deaths will occur globally in 2025. That comes from the Metaculous Prediction Community. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Tuesday, December 12th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner, inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. Podcast.